Thank you for flying Commando Airlines. I'm your captain, Kim Commando speaking. Oh, wow. How corny is that? Well, from Commando.com, this is Commando on Demand. We talk to the industry movers and shakers. We keep you up to date on everything digital. You can get new episodes every Wednesday and Friday. And our destination by the end of this episode is increased knowledge of robotic pilots. Oh, now, can you imagine you hop on board your flight and there's no one in the cockpit? Not a person. No safety net. It's just you, a couple of hundred other people on board, and an artificial intelligence voice guiding you along from the terminal to the runway to the flight and landing. Could this someday be a reality? I mean, has technology really taken us this far? And how soon could it happen? What will it be like? Well, we're about one minute away from takeoff, where we'll certainly have your answers. But in the meantime, I want you to sit back and relax. Grab a bag of overly salted peanuts and enjoy the show. Oh, and by the way, keep your phone, your computer, your tablet set to be on for the remainder of this flight. Because you're about to hear some amazing interviews you're not going to want to miss. From a veteran American Airlines pilot and his feelings about artificial intelligence in the air, to a science computing whiz who can give us some amazing insights into the future of flight. But before we hit the runway, and I promise you this is the last analogy, I'd like to first thank our partners in this podcast because they help make these podcasts possible. When you're hiring, you don't want to waste time sorting through dozens of irrelevant resumes. You want an efficient way to get to a short list of qualified candidates. You need Indeed.com. Post a job in minutes. Set up screener questions based on your job requirements. Then zero in on qualified candidates using an intuitive online dashboard. Discover why 3 million businesses use Indeed.com for hiring. Post a job today at Indeed.com slash hire. Search for greatness. Search Indeed. Okay, welcome aboard. All right, just one more. If you've ever been on a plane before, you're used to this sound. But what if one day a robotic arm is piloting your flight along with artificial intelligence? That's a sound none of us will be used to, at least not right away. But before we talk about this possible future, let's go back one year into the past. Technology moves so quickly, you already know that. But it's been a year since the U.S. military invented a robot arm that can fly commercial airplanes using artificial intelligence. So the robot pilot developed by engineers at DARPA, you know that, that's the Pentagon's research unit. The robot flew and landed a simulated 737 and also some smaller planes, too. So what does this mean? Well, the whole idea is that the robot can act much more like a human pilot than the software we presently have in existence. And this could make it easier on the pilots. And also, in case you've ever wondered, I mean, was the pilot drinking before they got into the cockpit? I, you know, I think about that every once in a while. It's also going to make things easier on our wallet. But just because something's easier or cheaper doesn't mean that it'll be met with wide open acceptance. Okay, we're going to be talking with an American Airlines pilot about how he feels from the pilot's perspective soon. But before we get to all of that, our good friend Mike James, well, he's standing by with our first guest because he knows everything about the technology, where it's going, what we can expect it'll do. So, Mike, I gave you a lot of questions to ask. Take it away. 
Okay, so Jeremy, uh, let's start by asking a little bit about yourself. I know you're a super smart guy. What is your background in, as far as the aerospace and all that? So I've worked in a variety of different uh, contexts related to, uh, to aerospace. We have a, a satellite program uh, where we're developing uh, what's called a CubeSat satellite. Uh, that's something that, uh, that I lead efforts uh, related to here. We also have a variety of projects related to unmanned aerial vehicles, um, and I'm, I'm involved with a number of those and lead one or two of those. So a variety of kind of different, uh, different perspectives on it, uh, both on the very functional side of trying to develop hardware that actually, you know, has to operate and do the things that you expect functional hardware to do. And then very much on the, you know, theoretical side where we're looking at stuff much further down the road um, and, and, you know, kind of technological capabilities that might not be implementable right now but it would be something to kind of strive for in the future. Well, while we're on the subject, what do you see? Can you give us a little idea of the way down the road things that are coming? Well, I think there's a lot of neat stuff um, that we can expect in unmanned aerial vehicles. And it's always difficult um, to figure out how, you know, how soon something is going to happen because it's not just a technology question. In a lot of cases, you have a question of, you know, will the public support it? How long does it take to have, you know, the appropriate regulations in place for it? But I think we'll see, you know, autonomous flights, um, you know, a lot of things like package delivery, pizza delivery, you know, that we've already seen the start of where we have companies um, that are doing that just on, you know, limited and trial basis or in other countries where they don't have necessarily all the same types of laws and regulations that we do. So I think we'll see that um, relatively quickly. And I think in the longer term, we'll start to see some of these autonomy technologies actually reducing the need for augmenting um, human pilots where it might be something where previously you had, you know, two pilots on a plane and now you can have one pilot and then the, uh, you know, the autonomous technology providing, you know, kind of the safety pilot or the capability to take over in case there is uh, some sort of an emergency or, you know, the, the pilot has fatigue. And then eventually, you know, we might even see that, uh, you know, that we don't actually need a human pilot on every plane because we have a way of maybe even letting uh, somebody intervene remotely if the need arises. As far as that kind of technology, it just kind of leads me to believe now there, there is – when there's no pilot on a plane – that means there's nobody back on the ground flying it like a drone. So in this kind of situation, w- would there be somebody on the ground kind of overseeing all of them? And then if, if something happened, they would take over? Is that what you're looking at? Or is that just they're out there, they're making the decisions, the uh, autonomous pilot, that is? How does that work? Well, and that's a big question. And there are a few different groups that are looking at this from different perspectives. One approach would be kind of the remotely flown craft um, or even having a human pilot on, you know, on the aircraft with the uh, capability of having another human pilot accessing it remotely, either as a backup to the onboard pilot or to take over in the event of an emergency from the onboard pilot. Another approach would be to have the onboard system fully autonomous and then having the uh, capability for a human on the ground or a team of humans on the ground uh, to intervene if that's necessary. And so there's a lot of different ways of, of really kind of looking at this challenge, just like we have a lot of different ways where we operate UAVs right now, ranging from some UAVs, which actually have teams of multiple humans on the ground in a cockpit-like environment actually operating them remotely, to the full other end of the spectrum where you have other UAVs that are operating nearly autonomously with humans helping, um, you know, in small ways where, you know, maybe target identification for a uh, military drone is an area where the technology can't quite handle it right now. 
but other areas of the uh, of flight and of uh, you know returning to base, et cetera, are things that can be done fully autonomously. And so the areas where the technology is there, they use the technology, and in the areas where the technology is not quite ready yet, um, obviously they're still using the human. So there, again, there's a lot of different ways to uh, to approach this challenge. You mentioned a little while ago about um, how people accept this kind of technology. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? How likely are people to get on a plane that's flown by a robot? Well, I think if you ask people right now, and there, there have been a few surveys to this effect, you know, there are not a ton of people that are that are super excited about it because you always have the question of, well, what happens when, you know, insert whatever technology failure you can think of here goes wrong. And, you know, we've seen this in other areas as well. When, uh, you know, the people movers start started coming out, those are the kind of trams we see in airports and in other places. There was a notion that nobody was going to accept these things because there was nobody on board. If something went wrong, there'd be nobody immediately there to respond to them. And now over time, you know, these are ubiquitous there. You know, you go to any number of major airports, you go to Las Vegas, um, you know, there's any number of these uh, these kind of people mover um, little trams that you can hop on. And so the answer has changed because the technology was introduced. People got an opportunity to try it. They got an opportunity to see that it was reliable and, uh, you know, bad things didn't happen. Or, you know, when they did, they weren't particularly bad or, you know, any worse than they would be if there was a human operator. And so they embraced it over time. And I think we'll see something similar with uh, autonomous flight. You know, initially there will be people that are very skeptical about it, and, and rightly so. I mean, it's a safety-critical system. We need people to be skeptical. We need people to say what could go wrong and try to show that the system is not ready for prime time so that those problems can be fixed and we can make sure that it actually is. But over time, as you know, we get more experience with the system, maybe flying in a backup or a standby mode, then maybe having an onboard, you know, complete flight crew where they can take over at a moment's notice, but the technology is, you know, at the helm, um, figuratively, at least in this case. Um, you know, we may eventually get to a point where there's less need for human staffing on board, and eventually it may come to, uh, you know, to a different model where we're training flight attendants, for example, to have capabilities to take over in an emergency just the way you might if something happened um, to both a pilot and a co-pilot. You know, we hear those stories occasionally of, you know, something happened to the pilot and the co-pilot um, at the same time. And so the flight attendant had to be coached, you know, as to how to fly the plane or land the plane um, because they're the people that are on board. And it could be that one of the uh, one of the strategies to making sure that we have that kind of ultimate um, you know, failure um, resiliency is to make sure that we have at least one person on the plane who is otherwise occupied doing things that are, you know, important to the safety of the flight, but also should, you know, the worst case scenario of every technology system relevant to this failing can take over and has that basic knowledge to allow them to get on the radio to the ground and actually, uh, you know, land the plane properly. And I think, you know, one thing to keep in mind there too is this wouldn't necessarily be you know, a position that would be just kind of the, the, you know, a normal flight attendant position. This might be a more highly compensated position um, because the person has to have those uh, those particular additional skills. Just like on uh, international flights, you have uh, people who have certain skills related to dealing with some of the, uh, you know, international elements of making sure certain regulations and laws are followed. And so you'll have like a bursar on the flight who is uh, in a more highly compensated position because they have to deal with, again, that kind of extra special stuff in addition to doing the stuff that every other flight attendant does of helping the passengers on board, being prepared to uh, assist the passengers in an emergency situation and all the other kind of job duties and requirements that go with those positions. 
This is fascinating, and I want to get into more of the uh, the technology and how it works and how it was developed. And I know there's a shortage of pilots right now, how likely this is to happen. We're going to take a quick break and hear from our partners who help make this podcast possible. Come back more with Jeremy in just a moment. Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos, all commission-free. Plus, there's no account minimum deposit needed to get started. So you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data and place a trade in just four taps on your smartphone. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio, discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss an opportunity to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners of Commando On Demand a free stock like Apple, Ford, or Sprint to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at invest.robinhood.com, invest.robinhood.com. Welcome back to Commando On Demand. We're talking to Jeremy Straub, who is an expert in aeronautical or, I guess, pilotless, what do you call it? Well, there's a lot of names for it, and that, that's you know that's another challenge. Is you know before people can begin to br- embrace the technology, you have to have a name uh, for for them to know what they're embracing. But I, I think autonomous aircraft is probably one of the more ubiquitously used ones at this point. Awesome. So, uh, how does this technology work? I mean, how does a robot see a runway and land a plane? Can you go through that? Sure. And there's a lot of different aspects uh, to this. So. The first thing that the uh, that any type of an autonomous craft is going to have is some sort of position knowledge. And when we say the term position knowledge, we're talking about basically that the craft knows where it is. Uh, that's, you know, kind of latitude and longitude to a very high degree of accuracy. And then also altitude, how high it is above the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, it then has to take that information about where its position is and then know things about like where the runway is, where other obstacles, you know, like, you know, tall trees or, uh, you know, communications towers that might interfere with the flight path are. And it needs to then look at uh, all of these different things and then figure out how to best operate in the airspace. Also understanding it has to understand the rules of the airspace, things like uh, temporary flight restrictions, uh, what are called notums, uh, notice to airmen, which basically talk about different things that are unusual in an airspace or restrictions on the use of an airspace or so forth. So there's a lot of different pieces of information that an autonomous uh, aircraft has to have in order to be successful, just like a human pilot has to know a lot of these different pieces of information to be able to successfully operate the aircraft. Well, that technology is already on the plane, right? The GPS and all that, the, the flight level. So it's kind of, I guess, having the, for lack of a better word, robot interpret that knowledge and then fly the plane or could a plane land itself? I've, I've heard stuff like that. So a lot of major airports have systems um, on the ground that work with systems on the plane to aid in landing, um, you know, even, even current flights that have humans on board the flight. And so if you remember a number of years ago, there was an incident in California where, um, you know, for, for a variety of different reasons, the plane was not able to communicate properly with that system. And that resulted in the plane actually hitting the wall, the seawall of the airport yeah, um, because it was at the wrong wrong altitude there. And so the, the systems are designed to basically help the aircraft um, come in, make that landing. And I believe in that instance, the system was disabled or partially disabled. 
Um, and so it wasn't able to facilitate that. But there's already those types of systems that exist uh, that can help human pilots uh, actually make landings. And in some cases, when there's really bad weather, when there's no visibility or very limited visibility or other problems, those systems can actually bring the plane in for a landing, um, relying largely on the, uh, on the autonomy uh, to do that. Similarly, during, the, uh, during flight, in most cases, the uh, pilot will set you know, a destination or a waypoint and put the plane on autopilot uh, so that it can actually you know, do the things that it needs to do um, with the pilot, of course, still being there, still watching that closely. But again, you have an automated system that's actually operating the aircraft. So there, there's already a lot of this that's being used. When you're talking about removing the pilots from the plane, though, then you need some, uh, some additional technologies to you know, be able to deal with the kind of emergency situations and special situations that the human pilot, uh, you know, obviously would be able to deal with, as well as to validate that the other systems are working the way a human pilot would as well. I want to get into that in the future, but before that, I wanted to talk a little bit about the uh, the history of this technology and what it's developed for. I'm I'm assuming that uh, probably it came a lot of it came from the military, and it's is it developed and then from military situations to commercial situations. And uh, I don't know, can you just speak to that a little bit? So there are a number of different uh, sources of kind of the legacy of these different technologies. Um, a lot of the autonomous command and control capability technologies that we were just talking about on commercial flights were developed for those uh, commercial flights. You then also huh. have a lot of technologies that have been developed uh, specifically for military drone operations. And one of the challenges that uh, you know uh, people that would be looking at developing an autonomous plane have right now is that they have a lot of different technologies to choose from and figuring out what technologies are the best, have the best uh, heritage that's the most relevant to actually being able to solve this uh, this challenge and bringing those to bear. So, you, you again, you have a lot of different things to choose from that have been developed for different reasons um, here. And, and, you know, so it's a, from a developer perspective, it's really great because there's so many different places to choose from. But it also means you have to actually make that choice or, you know, maybe make several choices and bring those technologies together. Uh, I know that there's a shortage of pilots. And so just uh, off the cuff, where do you see this technology in five to ten years? Let's let's uh, start with five and then maybe ten. Do you see us having pilotless aircrafts in five years, commercial aircraft? I, I think it's possible. I think the first place we will see uh, commercial pilotless aircraft is probably with freight, um, where you don't have obviously the same level of concern as you would if you have humans on board. Um, obviously, an aircraft in the air is you know is, is a critical system no matter what because. Even if that uh, you know the technology fails and there are no humans on board, first of all, you don't have anybody to take over from the thing, so you don't have the ability to have, say, a flight attendant with extra training, you know, take over in, in an emergency situation. On the other hand, you have more options in terms of what you do with an aircraft that's having some sort of a, a failure when you don't have humans on board and you don't have kind of the dual challenge of protecting the people on the ground as well as the people on the plane. So I think we'll start seeing. The technology introduced probably on on freight flights, and I think one of the things that we'll see is it will start as a technology to aid human pilots to make it so you know as you just mentioned the pilot shortage can be relieved a little bit by having a human pilot um, who perhaps would have previously had a colleague on the flight and might now be able to in some circumstances um, use that automated system to meet the requirement to have, you know, the appropriate level of, uh, you know, flight officers on the plane. And we may see that it, you know, it starts being used, for example, for short haul flights where there's less concern 
um, you know, about uh, you know, fatigue and other issues that might be more pronounced on longer haul flights. We might also see it being used during certain legs of long haul flights where there's really not a whole lot of expectation that there's going to be a need for uh, pilot intervention, say when you're over the ocean for a long period of time, where you might have a fully crewed flight, but then it goes down to say having just one person in the cockpit with the autonomous system um, also aiding while the uh, other members of the flight crew go and get rest. Um, there are a number of other issues here. You know, I, I don't want to paint too rosy of a picture because one of the reasons that there are multiple people in the cockpit is a security thing too, where you want to make sure that you have a way of, uh, you know, if if a, a you know, flight team member gets incapacitated or has a nefarious purpose, you know, having that extra person in the cockpit can be really important to responding to that. So. We need to make sure not only that this technology is ready for prime time, which may be in some ways a um, a thing that will happen far before it actually you know gets used, because obviously you need to have the technology in place and and reliable before you can start saying, okay, how do we use this? But we also need to solve this question of how do we deal with all of these other special situations that we know how to deal with now with multiple humans in the cockpit in a situation where there might be only one human in the cockpit or no humans in the cockpit, and answering those questions of, again, security, um, fatigue, uh, medical issues, and so forth. And it's not to say that there aren't answers for them. It's just to say that th these are important questions that need to be addressed before we can, you know, we can really charge forward with this. Well, that's the nuts and bolts, the implementation of the technology. Very, very interesting. Does this mean that uh, prices for tickets will go down? I, that's a kind of a crazy question, but would uh, what would change from the uh, perspective of the uh, of the traveler, so I think there's a, a number of different things. Um, you know, when you're talking about a plane full of people, the cost of the pilot is not a tremendous expense um, compared to other things like fuel and the cost of the plane itself. So it's not like you know having the pilot not on the plane is going to you know slash ticket prices overnight, where you know suddenly all flights are going to cost half as much or something like that. Um, there potentially could be a slight savings that, uh, you know, with commercial pressures is eventually passed on to consumers. But I think probably the biggest thing is it's going to provide more flexibility um, in areas where you might have already had a pilot shortage that's limiting the ability to, uh, you know, to do flights in certain circumstances, maybe flights at certain times um, where it's difficult to find, uh, you know, a way to schedule that with the, uh, you know, the airline's other scheduling considerations. I think we may also start to see this helping in kind of the air taxi arena. And for those that may not have heard the term air taxi before, these are smaller planes that might be, uh, you know, only carrying one or two or three passengers, kind of the way you would get into a taxi cab, um, you know, in a large city. And, and you get to tell the, you know, basically within with limits, of course, where you want the, uh, where the uh, plane to go. So it's more of an ad hoc flight service as opposed to the, uh, you know, kind of scheduled airline flights. And so I think these are a number of different areas where we could start to see benefits from the you know, autonomous uh, uh, command technology for aircraft uh, quite early in the game. And then I think once we see that starting to work more and more and more, it's likely we'll see more adoption um, as the technology proves itself in that operating environment. And uh, you know, people are more comfortable using it and airlines are more comfortable using it and human pilots are more comfortable uh, you know, relying on it and working with it um, as a way to help them you know, be able to be more effective, um, you know, at their jobs. And, you know, one of the things I, I actually think from that, um, that kind of perspective is that when you no longer need two or three people in an aircraft, depending on how long the flight is and other considerations, it could also be that this actually is something that provides a boost to pilot wages because, 
you know, you, you're, you have a little bit more to play with in terms of your, uh, your flight crew staffing, you know, cost model when you just don't have that second or that third person that's needed there. And, uh, you know, again, presuming that there's still competitive uh, pressure and that there's, you know, less pilots than demand, this could allow the airlines to take kind of the exact economic model they have right now, reduce staffing a little bit, and then increase the wages of the staff that are uh, that are actually there. So this could actually be a very good thing for pilots, um, at least in the short term. And I think just like other industries where you know technology has changed the industry, we may find that there are lots of really neat roles for humans that have these particular skills that are more challenging and more rewarding in the longer term. Where you know they can they would obviously have a, a really key role for people that you know, have aeronautical knowledge in developing these systems and, you know, looking at how to deal with failures. So I, I think there's a lot of kind of neat, neat things out there, a lot of questions we don't have answers for yet, but it'd be really exciting to kind of explore in the next five to 10 years and beyond. Well, that kind of addresses this next question, but uh, I was just thinking, I'm sure there are pilots going to be listening to this. And let's, let's say you have a veteran pilot that's been flying 747s for 20 years. And of course, he's come across experiences and I'm sure you've probably talked to these guys, but what would you say to him if he says to you, look, you do not want a computer flying this plane because uh, it's very dangerous. You have to make split second decisions. And the experience of my 20 years is much better than any computer that you could put in here. What would you say to that pilot? Well, you, you have two competing factors here. One is obviously the human pilot has got a, a creative capability that we don't have the uh, the capability to replicate in software at the moment. And so a human pilot might be able to come up with a solution that a piece of software wouldn't be able to. On the other hand, the piece of software is able to rapidly run through, you know, tens, hundreds, maybe even thousands of scenarios to evaluate which one might have the greatest likelihood of success you know, look at, uh, you know, data for uh, surrounding areas to see what types of opportunities might exist for, say, landing the plane. And so you don't lose that um, that reaction time or as much reaction time as a human pilot might need to think through the situation, um, particularly if it's a complex situation and not something where it's it's reactive, you know, certainly something where you're talking about, you know, avoiding something, you know, you the human is not going to necessarily take hopefully take 30 or 40 seconds to deal with that. They're going to respond, you know, kind of in the same way, you know, you or I might driving down the street where you have kind of these pre-programmed, what do I do in this type of circumstance? Because you see, you've seen it a few times and you just do it. One of the things that we saw um, when we were looking at uh, the uh, the the you know, the flight, of course, that landed on the Hudson and uh, that became the, the really great movie with Tom Hanks is how the reaction time actually played into the uh, solutions um, that were available and that when they were looking at the, uh, the different solutions, um, some of the solutions that were initially possible if the, um, the decision had been able to be made immediately actually weren't possible anymore after um, you know, a certain amount of time had elapsed to give the pilot and uh, co-pilot enough time to actually think through the situation and say, what, what do I have, you know, that's working here? What do I have that's not working here? What are my options? What do I do? And in that type of an environment, having the ability for a software system to throw all of its processing power, maybe even to, you know, send an emergency request to, to get more processing power on the ground and, you know, really put this, this massive, uh, you know, technological intellect at work solving the problem could be tremendous because it allows you to make a decision more quickly and not give up part of the decision space 
that's lost to the uh, the deliberative time. But you know, on the other hand, and I don't want to minimize this. You know, there is a there is a certain need for creativity, and you know, we hear about all these. Uh, you know, these great, you know, stories of human ingenuity, and we can't necessarily expect a software system to provide a completely out-of-the-box solution um, to a problem that it's never encountered before. And so, you know, a good system would leverage both of those uh, those parts, being able to make, uh, you know, make the best use of a human pilot or human, uh, you know, maybe flight controller who has the ability to come in and actually throw his or her tremendous experience and, you uh, intellect at a solution or developing a solution from the ground or from, you know, some other vantage point and also having the ability for the software system to throw its tremendous computational capabilities um, at, uh, you know, at the solution as well. And one of the things I think is actually kind of interesting, you mentioned kind of a veteran pilot, you know, for people that are helping control these flights on the ground, and this is certainly, I don't think this is something that's been looked into a lot, but it's certainly something where there would be some consideration of whether the same type of medical certification was required as would be required for on the plane. Um, you would have a, a question, of course, you know, if this person is controlling the plane on the ground and they have some sort of a medical incident, obviously we would need somebody to be able to take over from them quite quickly, which speaks to having similar medical requirements. But on the other hand, it's not like they're often in an isolated environment where there's nobody that can fill in for them. So there may be certain types of medical conditions that would, might have been um, might have precluded them from being able to actually fly on a plane um, that might allow them to uh, to fly on the ground. And we might be able to see some uh, some re relaxing of medical restrictions, maybe even age restrictions, to allow people that might no longer be able to fly a commercial flight to be able to do some of these other roles um, on the ground as well. So you know, thinking about it from that perspective, it might kind of open up, um, you know, open up aviation opportunities to people that were precluded due to medical conditions or age or other factors. And so that's something, again, I don't think has been explored much, but something that, uh, that definitely bears some consideration. Fascinating. Um, you know, actually what I heard there was in many ways, uh, having a, a pilotless aircraft is probably better than having a human. Is that how you feel? Well, I think it's a trade-off. I mean, I think you you need to have you need to make sure that uh, you know that flights are safe. I mean, that is that is the by far the most important thing. And you know, it's a real testament to everybody that's involved in the aviation industry that you know we can jump on a plane and we can know that you know absent something going dramatically and and you know kind of completely unexpectedly wrong, we're going to get to our destination safely. It's safer to fly on a plane than it is to drive down the street. Um, you know, and, and this is, this is a tremendous testament to the people that have, you know, spent, uh, you know, countless hours and years and decades even making our aviation industry as safe as it is. And it's really important that we leverage all of this knowledge and experience and, you know, all of the best practices that have been developed for manned aviation, as well as the ones that are being developed now for remotely piloted aviation and, uh, the ones that are, you know, much newer ones that are being developed for autonomous or partially autonomous aviation to try to make, you know, the flight experience as safe as it can possibly be. And I think there's a role for autonomy in that environment. You know, there's examples already of how autonomy makes flights safer by being able to aid in landings in certain circumstances where due to visibility and other considerations, a human pilot uh, is not as capable as the system because they just don't have the, uh, the same inputs that the system has. We talked previously about the landing automation systems. We've talked about autopilot systems that can help prevent fatigue during flight. 
And so there's lots of great examples of how automation and autonomy is already making the flight experience safer. And I think there's a lot of opportunities for that to be enhanced in the future, as well as a lot of opportunities for the knowledge and know-how and skills of you know, our, our, our aviation professionals and, and the incredible lineage of aviation professionals we have in this country to make future flights that may be more automated safer than they would be if they were being just developed by you know, a technology startup or something without all of that, uh, that you know, know-how and experience and knowledge. This is a tough question to answer, I think, but uh, maybe you've gone down this road before. Who ha- who would have the final say then if you were talking about the uh, situation in New York with uh, Sully in the movie? If uh, Air Controller was a human and said, come on back to the airport, you can make it, we can see that you can make it, and uh, the uh, the computer pilot would say, no, I can't make it, I'm landing in the Hudson River, who would have the final say? Well, that, that's a big question. So under current uh, regulations, the pilot is the person that is in command of the aircraft, and a pilot does not have to follow an instruction from an air traffic controller that they feel is going to place their plane in danger um, absent some, some very specific conditions related to national security um, and so forth. And even in, in those situations, there is a, you know, a, a clear deference to uh, pilots' autonomy um, to, to maintain the safety of their aircraft. So the question there becomes, though, at what point do we say, okay, the air traffic controller has a piece of information that the autonomous pilot doesn't have, or this is an unusual situation where we think that the autonomous pilot isn't functioning correctly, and we need to, uh, you know, to be able to, uh, to, to turn it off or to take control away from it or to force it to make a decision. So I, I don't think we're going to have a situation where we allow a uh, you know an autonomous aircraft to say you know that it's completely ignoring an instruction from the ground, but I also don't think we would want a situation where the autonomous pilot blindly follows the instructions of either an, an autonomous uh, air traffic controller or a human air traffic controller without a certain level of additional rigor being put in that's equivalent to what uh, you would have with a human pilot on board looking at the instruction from the air traffic controller from the opposite perspective of, okay, you know, the air traffic controller is responsible for the airspace and safe operation of the airspace. The pilot is responsible for the safety operation of the aircraft. And, uh, you know, these sometimes can be slightly different perspectives. And at a minimum, you have a different or second set of eyeballs looking at, uh, you know, at this question where even if the, uh, you know, the flight controller um, said something that maybe was a mistake or misspoke or, you know, wasn't, uh, wasn't considering a factor, the human pilot might, uh, might be able to point that out. So I think before we get to the point where we want to, you know, let, you know, any air traffic controller override the system, we would need to have a very, you know, strong set of policies and procedures for doing that. And my guess would be that while there is some sort of an override capability, it's probably not the same person that's doing the moment-to-moment um, airspace control. It might be some sort of a supervisory role or a role that vests with the uh, the people that might take command of the aircraft in the event of a system failure, where you make sure you have that second set of eyeballs on the challenge to make sure that, uh, you know, what the air traffic controller is saying from the perspective of looking at it from a kind of a whole airspace view also makes sense from looking at it from an operation of the aircraft view as well. Okay. Well, I've got one more question here. Um, Obviously, we've had um, autopilot for many, many years, and so the pilots really don't fly the plane as much anymore. Is there a concern or have you seen any concerns of uh, pilots kind of 
being useless, even their co-pilots while the computer is flying the plane, uh, and then kind of losing their edge, I guess, when something does happen? So there have been a variety of reports uh, related to this. And I, I think, you know, again, before we go too far into this topic, you know, it, it's really important to remember how incredibly safe the U.S. And, and, you know, worldwide aviation system is. And the reason that it is that safe is because, you know, I, I would say 99 times out of 100, but that wouldn't be an accurate statistic. It's something like, you know, 99.999, you know, times out of 100. The, the humans are doing an admirable job doing, you know, everything that they need to do, going above and beyond the call of duty, like, uh, you know, with the discussion of, uh, of Captain Sully and, and landing on the Hudson and, you know, the, the you know, decisions that he made to do that uh, using his vast experience. But, you know, with all of that being said, there have been some reports from people that study human factors and study the pilot experience. And I believe um, even some concerns raised uh, through the through reports from pilots that not having as much time on the controls is making it so some of the skills that are developed and maintained through having, you know, hands on uh, time on the controls obviously atrophy over time. And so, you know, I think that that's a that's an important thing that you need to consider is making sure that if you're relying upon people to take over in an emergency situation, they have the situational knowledge and awareness that's necessary to do that. You know, you don't want somebody coming into an emergency situation and having to spend, you know, a minute or two minutes acclimating themselves. Okay, you know, this flight is here. This is what's going on around it. You know, all of these different things where it takes so long to get them up to speed that the emergency, you know, is already developed more fully because of this amount of time that it takes for them to figure out what's going on. Um, and, you know, and similarly, we also want to make sure that uh, the people that are dealing with, you know, whether it's taking over from a system that's had some sort of a fault or that, you know, maybe have some indication that a fault could be present or taking over an emergency, that they have the skills that are necessary to actually operate the aircraft as effectively as possible, which means having a lot of practice and using those skills frequently. Now, one approach to uh, to solving this problem um, that's being used right now is to get you know, to actually proactively say, okay, even though the autonomous system can do this, we're going to have this be a hands-on uh, time where we're going to have the humans fly the plane, even though again we know the system could do perfectly fine right here, you know, from an autopilot perspective or um, you know automated landing system perspective or something else. Another approach is to have uh, people you know take time in simulators. And, uh, and build up, you know, the, uh, or can, I shouldn't say build up, but continue to hone their skills and to, um, you know, retain those skills through simulation. And one of the benefits of doing it in simulation is you can have people that work through scenarios that are not going to happen in day-to-day, -day, uh, you know, travel very often. And so you can have people that when they're coming into an emergency situation have experience in similar situations because they've done them through simulation. And so, you know, again, there's a lot of interesting opportunities that are presented here when you have, um, you know, pilots working with the, uh, you know, autonomous technology to, again, try to produce the safest flight uh, possible, as well as, uh, you know, make it so there's more opportunities for people, you know, perhaps on smaller planes, perhaps on, uh, you know, uh, flights at times of the day and night that might not be as desirable uh, to staff or difficulty staffing for whatever reason, longer flights being able to have, you know, uh, those operate with maybe say one set of flight crew or one set of flight crew with a slight augmentation as opposed to having to have multiple full crews on there. So, you know, again, a lot, a lot of things that are, that are opened up to this that I, you know, I think it's going to be really exciting to see where, where the introduction of more and more autonomy into uh, commercial uh, aviation takes us. 
actually, it's very exciting, and I think we covered everything. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's good to know, too, that your your safety is uh, still the number one priority, uh, even as we kind of move into this technology. Yeah, definitely. Well, again, thank you for having me. And, you know, again, I think that, you know, that is the, the, the most important thing to keep in mind is that nobody wants to impair the safety of, you know, of aircraft. And, you know, that that's one of the challenges you always have as, you know, as people are building new technologies is making sure that they're properly vetted. And, you know, particularly in a safety critical um, industry, you know, making sure that they are there as safe or ideally more safe as what's happening now before they're, you know, they're used to replace something that obviously has a, uh, a strong legacy of, of performing admirably and being really, really safe. All right, that was fascinating. And now we have kind of a perspective on the science behind this technology and the direction that that's going. But do you wonder how pilots actually feel about this technology? How would a pilot feel about having a co-pilot that's a computer or even eliminating the pilot's job? Well, up next, Kim is back, and she's going to talk to a 20-year Air Force and a veteran of American Airlines pilot. Now, it's the same thing, 20 years in the Air Force, 20 years with American Airlines. So, a lot of experience. We're going to get to that in just a moment. Right now, we'll take a quick time out to hear from our partners who help make this podcast possible. It's 2019, and technology has grown leaps and bounds since 1999. So. Why are you still using that old, outdated software? Find software that fits your business's needs using Captera.com. I get asked all the time for different recommendations, and I refer people to Captera.com. With over 700,000 reviews of products from real software users, discover everything you need to make an informed decision. Search more than 700 specific categories of software, everything from project management to email marketing to yoga studio management software. No matter your business needs, Captera makes it easy to discover the right solution fast. Join the millions of people who use Captera each month to find the right tools for their business. Visit captera.com/kim today to find the right tools to make 2019 the year for your business. Once again, that address is captera.com/kim. Let me spell it for you. C A P T E R R A.com/kim. All right, welcome back. We're talking robots piloting airplanes and possibly maybe someday your plane. We talked about how the technology works and what it might mean for you and for all of us. But what about the pilots? Right now, I'm super excited to introduce you to an outstanding pilot, a former instructor and evaluator pilot with the United States Air Force for almost 20 years. He's a veteran pilot of American Airlines for just as much time, totaling decades and decades of experience in our airspace. I love pilots. They are so smart, so intuitive. As a matter of fact, I love pilots so much, I married one. But I didn't marry this pilot, Stephen LaPointe. He joins us now to talk about all these ideas about robotic pilots. And Stephen, before we get into the technology, I want to know more about you. When and why did you become a pilot? Yeah, yeah. My, my, well, my inspiration started out in high school. I thought uh, I, I ended up being eight, uh, number eight out of 340 kids, and I got a little bit burned out, and I thought I wanted to be an auto mechanic. And then I said, why work on automobiles when you can work on jet engines? And then it was when my sister's husband at the time took me up in a small plane one afternoon uh, when I was in the 10th grade, and I said, oh, my gosh, I just immediately it was like, I want to learn how to fly. So I told my parents, I don't even want to get a driver's license. Can I learn how to fly? And they said, no. So uh, from then on, I started 
finding my way to what I thought was going to be the, the best way to get an education through the Air Force and ended up uh, spending 22 years and nine days on active duty and a total of 24 years and 51 weeks in the active and reserve uh, capacity. And now I'm a veteran slash retiree working for American. It's selling it's selling pride. It's selling yourself as an aviator. I always like to comment that you've got some veterans up here flying. We served once in the military, and we now enjoy serving you at American Airlines. And that's, his, that's my passion is really serving people, making them feel comfortable about flying, giving them a new experience in the air through viewing me at the cockpit door when they get on and seeing me be the last one off and giving them a smile or thanking them for their business and letting them know that uh, I mean they're paying me my salary and the training that I've had has, has readied me to hopefully take on any type of circumstance that I might have on the air or on the ground when it comes to uh, providing this service to millions of people. It's amazing. So, Stephen, there's this whole narrative that AI is taking over and pilots are going to be replaced. But certainly you can explain how pilots would still play an extremely important role. I mean, let's talk about the importance of having a human being, a real honest-to-goodness pilot on board. Well, well, what's amazing is the importance of a human pilot is the fact that I don't think the public is ready for a single or to have nobody up in the front of an airplane and try to think that it can be uh, uh, remotely operated. The pilot is not only responsible for the takeoff and the landing and the cruise portion of the flight, it's so responsible for the management of the crew. It's uh, helping even the other day. I was sitting there helping some people up in business class put their bags in the overhead. Uh, I go to the back and I say hello to the kids and I give them wings and I get their name and then I say their name over the PA. So it's more than just occupying a seat for a takeoff and a landing. I don't see AI ever eliminating a pilot. The fact that we've got redundancy in the aircraft means that we need redundancy in the seats. There's so many times that my captain used to count on me, and now as a captain on American Airlines for a little bit over a year, there's so many times I count on my co-pilot to, to help me while I'm flying. I ask him, hey, have you been here before? Sometimes there's places I'm going that I've never even been before, and he's got the product knowledge that I need. He's got uh, the information that's going to make getting into Areas of high terrain like down in Quito or Guatemala City, it's, there's so many other variables outside of, of just manipulating the controls when it comes to dealing with air traffic control, when it comes to dealing with weather, when it comes to dealing with the terrain. Uh, it's, it's really a two-man uh, operation. It used to be three-man when we had engineers on board, and that third crew member was a vital part of the crew outside of him just managing uh, moving fuel around or, or the air conditioning and heating on the airplane, he was a vital part of safety. And that's that's what it boils down to. Talking about technology is one thing. Experiencing it gives you a whole different perspective. Have you gotten to fly with an AI co-pilot yet? I mean, what was your experience? Uh, well, the only, the only first-hand experience I have of anything like that is watching that movie with Will Smith called iRobot, where you've got these uh, automatrons or these robots walking around. But I don't think I'd be, I would be at all favorable of it. I like managing a crew. I like having somebody else to talk to. I don't think that that AI is going to have the personality or is it going to be as enjoyable a trip, especially when you're talking transatlantic or going across the Pacific. You're now looking at long hauls, which go from the States over to Japan, and now you're looking at, at trying to occupy a space and entertain yourself while trying to converse or manage with an AI, I, I just don't see it happening. I mean, they're talking about it, but I know as a pilot union and as a pilot myself, I've got about 
10 more years in this business. I'm hoping in the ten, next 10 years, I don't see it. Have you heard a lot of chatter about this from other pilots? I mean, could you even imagine flying with an AI yourself? You know, if you think about AI, I'm even thinking now that this question is posed to me, will it be AI in the right seat or the left seat? Because the left seat guy, the left seat female, whoever it happens to be, is the captain, they're the pilot in command, they're ultimately responsible for the operation and the safety of that aircraft. But if you're talking about putting an AI in the left seat and making those types of decisions and thinking about them being able to interact with the passengers and the crew, uh, wow, I... I don't know. I've, I've never even thought much about this subject, but uh, I would relegate the AI to the right seat, let them be a backup position, let them be subject to whatever the captain says because he has to ultimately make the final decision when it came to the weather, going around, landing, whatever it happens to be. And uh, that's where I would rather see it, in a, in a helping position. I don't. Obviously, it's going to help the airline save money because now you don't have to pay that that AI, you've got to pay for the upkeep or whoever manufactured it. So I don't know if in the long run, if it's going to be beneficial to keep an AI running, because maybe you can get away with paying a pilot less than it is maintaining the software or the uh, that entire apparatus. Who knows what the cost uh, benefits or detriments to AI are going to be? There has recently been a reported shortage of pilots. People just aren't getting into the profession anymore. Why is that? Actually, the main two reasons for the pilot shortage, well, there's actually three reasons. Uh, if you look at a lot of the military pilots that are deciding whether they want to make it a career or not, some are very dedicated to the military, so they decide to stay in the military versus getting out. There could be the monetary uh, compensation, which the military is trying to do now to keep their pilots around more, so that keeps some. So that's one reason. We do have a good flow of pilots from the military to the civilian carriers. The other one being is after the Colgan crash, Years ago, outside Buffalo, the FAA stepped in and they made a big change when it came to the amount of hours required. So now they've upped the amount of hours, the amount of experience required to get onto and fly with an airline, which is uh, the second reason. And uh, the third reason is a lot of people started to take the aviation industry as one in which they did not want to get into because the pay was a little bit lagging, uh, the hours are very demanding. You've got to sometimes commute to where you work. So there were a lot of negatives. But right now, uh, the airlines are doing well. They're hiring. We've got flow programs from American Eagle Envoy up to the main line. So they've got guaranteed jobs if they can maintain their proficiency and their record with their subsidiary. Then they flow right to the main line airline. And uh, it's, a, it's a great program. The pay is, has caught up. And uh, the benefits are still a little bit lagging, but you get great travel. You've got uh, some healthcare woes, which people are always complaining about how much it costs for healthcare now, even at, in the airline. But uh, I think they're they're making a turn for the better because uh, the industry itself and the pilot profession has has somewhat rebounded. It's really a, a great place to to seek a profession and a career, and it gives you so many other opportunities. Hey, Stephen, thank you for your time on the show today. It's been super awesome to get this story from your perspective. And we wish you all the continued success on your journeys through air or on land or trains. And we should all keep in mind for us to ever reach a point where robots are actually replacing human pilots, it's going to require a ton of rewrites. I mean, absolutely huge rewrites of all these different safety regulations by the Federal Aviation Administration. 
I mean, this is the government. Even tiny changes take years to make with the FAA. And that's part of why back in 2016, DARPA's program manager told the New York Times that robots replacing human pilots could still be a couple of decades away into the distant future. You might remember when I kicked off the show, I took you to the past just a year ago to when that robot arm successfully landed a simulated flight. And now, as we close out this podcast, I want to take you back even further for some real food for a thought. Okay, are you ready? All the way back to, you're not going to believe this, January 1st, 1914. If we are anxious about robots flying planes, what could the folks have thought back then as the world's first scheduled passenger airline service took off from St. Petersburg? Wow. Nowadays, we expect our pilots will have thousands of hours of flight time to the plane that they carry us in. Now, back then, a passenger had little more to live on than this belief and, of course, prayers and the technology and his ability to improve our lives. I mean, imagine getting on the first commercial flight, climbing to heights others could have never, ever seen before. Here's a little fun fact for you. Who was the first paying passenger? Anybody? This is like a Jeopardy question, right? Okay, the guy's name is Abram C. Feel, the former mayor of St. Petersburg. He enjoyed a 21-mile flight across the bay to Tampa, and it took him 23 minutes. Imagine that, 23 minutes up in the air, the first commercial flight, the first commercial passenger. I mean, at the end. Could you imagine? He's landed back on the ground, having a beer, talking to his buddy. He's like, hey, guess what I did today? I stepped into the future. I'd like to thank our guest today, Stephen LaPointe of American Airlines, Jeremy Straub from the University of North Dakota, and as always, Monica Golombieski. And yes, it took me at least a dozen times to figure out how to say Monica's last name. And I'm going to challenge all of you right now. How do you think you spell Golombieski? I agree. I think we should just call her Monica Smith. And also Mike James. I can say his name and spell it too, backwards. Amazing work, my friends. And to you for listening, if you like the show, come on, don't hide it. Share the knowledge. And make sure you get the Kim Commando Show podcast. Yes, that's three hours. Perfect for your commute and your walks. It does cost money, just a few bucks a month. You get that one commercial free. You can sign up right now at GetKim.com. Once again, that's GetKim.com. And I'm America's Digital Pro, Kim Commando. And hey, thanks for flying Commando Airlines. We've arrived at our destination. It's the end of the show. Now you're free to use your phone, your laptop, your tablet, or something else. Till the next flight, everyone. I'm Kim Commando. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. 
Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. 